Staying true to America's national destiny, the voice of the awakening. Your host, Bishop E.W. Jackson. Here we are. What a moment in history. What a moment in history. Um, Who would have thought that the 245th anniversary of our country's existence would face the things we're facing today? Who would have thought it? I mean, you would think after 245 years, we would be more united than ever, that we would be more at peace with who we are than ever, uh, and that we would see the way before us clearly uh, in unity. But in fact, it's exactly the opposite, sadly, exactly the opposite. So I want to talk to you today from this subject to create a nation, to create a nation. And I want to use a text out of Joshua chapter 1. We will probably puzzle, well, why this particular text? Joshua chapter 1, and I want to read for you verses 6 through 9. Remember, I'm reading out of the New King James Version. Welcome all of you who are watching live stream. Happy to have you celebrating with us here on July 4th. And uh, if the Lord touches you, blesses you, go to our website, thecall.org, and let us know that in however way you're led. Joshua chapter 1, verses 6 through 9 says, Be strong and of good courage, for to this people you shall divide an inheritance, the, as an inheritance, the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and, and very courageous, that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may prosper wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid, nor be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Now that passage is usually taught from this perspective. Joshua is stepping into the shoes of perhaps the greatest man who's walked the face of the earth up to that time, maybe second only to Abraham, Moses. And God is preparing him for the task that he has before him and to try to fill the shoes of leadership of this great man, Moses. But there's another perspective on this that God laid on my heart as I was preparing for today. God was dealing with more than just, you've got to replace Moses. Moses' leadership brought the children of Israel out of Egypt, and he brought them through the wilderness, but he didn't take them into the promised land. God disqualified him from that. And so think of it this way. Moses was a leader of rebellion and a leader of transition, but he wasn't going to be the leader of a nation. See, he led them 
through the Red Sea. He led them in the wilderness. But Joshua would be charged with the responsibility of turning a group of nomads into a nation. Into a nation. Now, when God condemned the children of Israel to wander in the wilderness for another 40 years to raise up a new generation, he was saying to them, not only you're not ready to enter into the promised land, he was also saying, you're not ready to be a nation. You're not ready to be a nation. It's going to take some time for that to happen. So he says to Joshua, Joshua, you're going to have to do something different than Moses did. You're going to have to create a nation. Moses didn't get to do that. Joshua, you're going to have to do that. And therefore, you're going to have to be strong and of good courage. Do you know God never said that to Moses? He never said that to Moses. I'm not saying Moses wasn't strong, didn't have good courage, but he never said that to Moses. This was uniquely carved out as an instruction and a command to Joshua. He says, be strong and of good courage, for to this people you shall divide as an inheritance the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. They're going into this land that I'm giving them, Joshua, and they're going to become the nation of Israel. In fact, you know, the first time God uses this phrase, be strong and of good courage, is when the children of Israel are being ready to finally enter into the promised land and Moses is about to depart. And in Deuteronomy 31, verses 1 through 3, it says, Then Moses went and spoke these words to all Israel, and he said to them, I am 120 years old today. I can no longer go out and come in. Also the Lord has said to me, You shall not cross over this Jordan. The Lord your God himself crosses over before you. He will destroy these nations from before you, and you shall dispossess them. Joshua himself crosses over before you, just as the Lord has said. And then in verses 6 and 7 of that chapter, he says, Be strong and of good courage. Do not fear, nor be afraid of them. For the Lord your God, he is the one who goes with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. Then Moses called Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, Be strong and of good courage, for you must go with this people to the land which the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you shall cause them to inherit. Now, of course, since God never spoke those words to Moses, why does he say them to Joshua? Why this particular command, be strong and of good courage, be very courageous? Because it takes a lot of strength to turn a bunch of tribes into a single unified nation. That's what they were. They were a bunch of tribes. And sadly, that's what there are some people trying to turn our country into again. They're trying to turn us into a tribal nation with identity politics. This group over here, that group over there, that group over there, this group over there, this group over there, and those people over there, and we're all at war. I mean, as you've got the Loudoun County School Board te telling teachers to teach their children that this country is made up of oppressors and the oppressed, and that the oppressors are men, white people, and Christians. Christians are oppressors. 
tribes. See, tribes. The oppressed are gays and lesbians, quote unquote, people of color, women, and on it goes. Tribes. Now we, we've got these tribes versus these tribes. That's not progress. That's not progressive. That's regressive. Now, the natural tendency of people is to degenerate into division. That's the natural tendency, to degenerate into division. Why do you think we have so many church splits? Because, you know, people, they want to do their own thing. They want to have their own way. And, and God is saying, Joshua, in order for you to, to, to avoid the consequences of that kind of tendency, you're going to have to be very strong and very courageous. So, so here's what they said to Joshua after he gave them these instructions. Joshua chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. So they answered Joshua saying, all that you command us, we will do. And wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we heeded Moses in all things, so we will heed you. Now they lied because they hadn't heeded Moses. That's why when I say you read the scripture, everything in the scripture is truly told, but not everything that's said in scripture is true. Because the people are talk, who are talking have to be considered. Now that's a great big fat lie. Just as we heeded Moses in all things, so we will heed you. Wait, excuse me? Only the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Do you all remember? Why do we have to follow Moses? We can go back to Egypt. Let's appoint us another leader and go back to Egypt. We don't need Moses. But they said, oh, Joshua, oh, yeah, we, we are unified behind you, Joshua. We understand. We're going to follow your leadership. And then by Joshua chapter 7, God is saying, Israel has sinned. And they have transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them, for they have even taken some of the accursed things. And this is where uh, Achan basically stole some Babylonian spoil that was supposed to completely e either be destroyed or given over to God. Uh, and he took it and hid it for himself. Well, that's what always causes a division, isn't it? Selfishness. Selfishness. People looking out for number one. So they didn't do mo everything Moses had, had told them to do, and they certainly weren't doing everything that Joshua told them to do. Now, here's the first principle I want you to understand, because this is where it bears on our country situation. Creating a nation is a lot harder than rebelling against one. Creating a nation is a lot harder than rebelling against one. Rebellion is easy. Tearing down is easy. Building up. Now that takes, that takes real strength and courage. Because it's easy to find fault. Anybody can do that. But figuring out how to create something, how to build something, that's a challenge. And we got a bunch of people in our country today who are very good at leading rebellion, but very bad at creating and building a nation. Everywhere the riots occur, everywhere they occur, everywhere they occur, very little that is destroyed is ever brought back. Very little. You can look today at the results of riots in the 60s, 
It's easy to tear up. But building up, now that's hard. So when the founding fathers declared our independence, they were creating a nation, not just rebelling against one. They were creating a nation. They had to be strong and very courageous because they knew they were going to face the British Army and Navy. And they also knew that they had internal division. I mean, only one third of the people in the country, based on all the scholarly studies I've heard of, one third of the people of the country sided with Great Britain and didn't want to be independent. So the founding fathers already were leading a divided group. They were going to have to be strong and very courageous. And, and knowing that if their efforts fail, they're going to be hung. They wouldn't lose their lives. There wasn't any question about it. They were, they were committing treason against King George III. And had he caught them, had he defeated these group of colonists, they would have all been killed. So knowing how dangerous their activities were, they appeal first to humanity itself. This is very interesting. So I don't care what anybody says. Until the day I leave this earth, I will have nothing but admiration for these great men because God used them in a magnificent way to do something that was unprecedented in the earth. And, you know, you can criticize all you want. Yeah, but they still had slavery, this, that. The whole world had slavery. And they, and they deal with that in the Declaration. So let me not get ahead of myself. So they read this publicly, by the way, after it was drafted. Here's the opening of the Declaration of Independence. And I'm going to explain to you what this means because some of the language that they use can be a little bit, it's old English, so it can be a little bit circuitous. They say, when in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them to another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. So what they're saying is, we believe we have a God-given right to do what we're doing. But we want to explain to humanity why we are doing it. We want everyone to understand. We want to set this out for posterity. So let me just say this right now. The Declaration of Independence declares their reasons for the separation. And this lying abomination released by the uh, New York Times, um, crafted by this pseudo-scholar, who's now been given tenure at the University of North Carolina after a lot of political fighting over it, this thing called the 1619 Project is a lying abomination. It is a lying abomination. I've, I've, it's hard to get your hands on it because they want to make money off of it, but I've read the outlines of it and read some of the notes from it. It's simply a lie. It's, look, here's what they do. They begin with this premise. We hate America. So now let me find everything I can find that will justify my hatred and hope that you'll join in with me. But the founding fathers gave the reasons why they were separating. And because the, the 1619 Project says the Revolutionary War was fought to, to preserve slavery. I mean, you, you've got to be an imbecile to believe that. You really do. I, I mean, 
But, but they're not imbeciles. They're, these are deceiving people. That this is what they want to do. They want to deceive everybody uh, to believe something that will justify hatred for the country. First of all, first of all, uh, the original draft of the Declaration by Thomas Jefferson included a denunciation of slavery. Hey, I, I don't know how many children are taught this in their history, but the original draft included a denunciation of slavery and incited, incited a national debate about ending slavery so that it would not come into the new nation. So if America's racist, why is there any debate? If America's white supremacist, why is there any debate? Here again, if you all have listened to me for any length of time, you know I've said, you almost didn't have a Declaration of Independence over that issue. Well, why would it be so important if America's just a white supremacist country and nobody really cares about that? Why would it be an issue? The historical fact of the matter is that 11 states were prepared to include that denunciation in the Declaration and two were not. Georgia and South Carolina. And the Founding Fathers said, in order to defeat the greatest empire in the world, we've got to be unified and we're going to have to put that issue off for a later time and first try to win this Revolutionary War. Now you may disagree with that judgment all you want, but that's a reasonable conclusion that the, to have come to because they felt like we could deal with slavery later, but right now we got to deal with Great Britain. And if we've got two people of two states, two, two colonies, that are siding with them or refusing to fight with us, we're, we're handicapped before we even start. Are you all following me? Here's what Thomas Jefferson wrote um, that never made the final draft because, because those two states demanded that it be taken out. They said, uh, these are accusations that they made against King George III. They said, he has waged... Okay, I found... Be quiet. <laughs> Whew, I tell you. This technology. You know, now, if that happened with a paper Bible, now we'd, we'd have something. You know? <laughs> but then I wouldn't say be quiet either. <laughs> it says... He has waged cruel war against human nature itself. Listen to this closely. This is what was in the original draft of the Declaration. He, King George, has waged cruel war against human nature itself, violating its most sacred rights of life and liberty in the persons of a distant people, referring to Africans, who never offended him, captivating and carrying them into slavery in another hemisphere or to incur miserable death in their transportation thither. Now, everybody blames the founding fathers as if they were the inventors of slavery. What they are saying is King George is the one who gave us slavery. He's the one who, who created that. He's the one who started, Britain started trading in slaves a hundred years before this. Well, really, really almost 200 years before. Almost 200 years before because Britain started trading slaves back in the 1500s, mid-1500s. So they're saying... This is what he has done. Of course, King George wasn't alive then, but they're saying he has perpetuated this. Then they say this piratical warfare, in other words, this piracy, the opprobrium of infidel powers, 
is the warfare of the Christian king of Great Britain. Now, I want you to listen to me closely here. Here's what they're saying. This detestable institution, it's the founding fathers talking about slavery, which is the opprobrium of infidel powers. What they're saying is even people who aren't Christians know it's wrong. But is the warfare of the Christian king. So when they're being smart and saying, and you call yourself a Christian, and you are perpetuating this thing, and we want to end it, but now listen to what they say. Determined to keep open a market where men should be bought and sold, he has prostituted his negative for suppressing every legislative attempt to prohibit or restrain this execrable commerce. Here again, old English, but here's all they're saying. Prostituted his negative is an old English term, meaning that he has sold his right to say no to engage in human slavery. In other words, instead of using it for purposes for which he ought to use it, he's using it instead to say, no, you can't stop slavery. I won't allow it. That's what they mean by prostituting his negative. He's got a veto power over everything that happens in the empire of Great Britain. They say instead of his using it for something good, he uses it to stop those who want to end slavery. Are you all with me? Amen. Don't they, our children won't learn this in their history books because they don't want them to learn things that will make them proud of our country. They only want them to learn things that see those racist Americans. Going on, it says, and that this assemblage of horrors might want no fact of distinguished die he is now exciting those very people to rise in arms against us. Let me just explain that. Here's what he's saying. That this horrible situation, as if it needed anything to make it worse, okay? This horrible situation, as, as if it needed anything to make it worse, said he is now exciting those very people to rise in arms against us and to purchase that liberty of which he has deprived them by murdering the people on whom he has obtruded them. In other words, he wants the slaves to kill us, and we're not the ones who started this. That's what, that's what this is. King George now is telling, you know, you kill them, you fight them, you kill them, and I'll, I'll reward you for it. So well, he's the one who instituted the institution, not us. Says, thus paying off former crimes committed again the, against the liberties of one people with crimes which he urges against them to commit against the lives of another. In other words, he begins by depriving them of their liberty. Now he takes one step further into his depravity by trying to get the people whose liberty he deprived to kill the people who he forced slavery on. Now, here again, you won't get this perspective in the mainstream media. And you won't get this perspective in the public schools. You won't get it in critical race theory, but I just gave you facts. I just read you what was in the declaration. So if America is such a white supremacist country, such a racist country, why, why is there any debate? Well, that's just the beginning. That's just the beginning. America's not a white supremacist country. That's another lie out of the pit of hell. We're a nation established during an era when slavery was normal in the world, a worldwide phenomenon. It was legally sanctioned by the mother country, by England, from which we were breaking away as a nation. 
and most of the signers of the Declaration of Independence wanted slavery gone. They knew it was, it was, it was a bad thing. But here again, it's easier to rebel than it is to create a nation. See, and they were trying to create a nation. So the founding fathers appealed to humanity saying, here's why we're doing what we're doing. But then they also appealed to God. They said, quote, we therefore, the representatives of the United States of America in general Congress assembled, appealing to the supreme judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions. See, we're appealing to God to, to try to do. See, here again, people can say what they want, but we as Christians ought to see that and realize they didn't have to say that. They can just say, we think this is right. End of discussion. But they say, we want to do what is right in the sight of God. Now, if you're a Christian and that doesn't mean anything to you, there's something wrong with your Christianity. And, and by the way, and there was no one for them to impress. England wasn't going to be impressed. France didn't really jump in until much, much later in the war. There were no nations around the world that they could turn to and say, oh, well, if we say these kinds of things, these nations will come to our aid. No. They were saying this because they wanted to express their own consciences about what they were doing. They began by saying this should not be done lightly. And they're saying we are not doing it lightly or we're appealing to God for the rectitude, the righteousness, in other words, of our actions. And they say, and by the authority of the good people of these colonies, solemnly publish and declare that these united colonies are and of right ought to be free and independent states, that they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown, and that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is and ought to be totally dissolved, and that as free and independent states, they have full power to levy war, conclude peace, contract alliances, establish commerce, and to do all other acts and things which independent states may have right to do, may have right do, listen, and for the support of this declaration with firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, which was a common saying of the day that referred to God Almighty, said we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. So they begin by saying we're appealing to God for the righteousness of what we're doing, and they end by saying we are relying upon God for our protection. And guess what? God gave it. Well, Bishop, how do you know God gave it? Because they won. <laughs> and, and by resources, by manpower, by, by military experience and, and strength, they shouldn't have won. They should not have won. Great Britain was the, the bestriding the world as the greatest empire on earth at that time. And here's a ragtag group of colonists that really had, had virtually no experience in fighting. When George Washington took over and arrived at the first military camp, he shook his head. Well, oh, oh my goodness. Whew. Because you have to remember, getting to the mindset of the founding fathers, they hated the very idea of a standing army because Britain had sent the armies of Great Britain into the, into, uh, the, the, on, onto the American continent and it abused people. Stayed in their houses without their permission, ran roughshod over them, and they were very, very skeptical about any standing army. 
So they didn't have one themselves. So when they had to finally become an army and start fighting, it really was a ragtag group of colonists. And George Washington was the only hope they had, somebody who had military experience and actually had fought. And even he had not fought at that point. I think, I forget, the, I think it was like a couple decades before he had fought in the French and Indian Wars. I mean, he was way out of practice, but he was a military man and he had proven himself in battle. So they said, we're seeking to do what's right in the sight of God. Amen? Amen.